Yes, I mean, one of the huge injustices of our deportation system as it currently exists is that the right to family life and family bonds between parents and children are completely disrespected by the system. Um, so deportation is effectively mandatory for anybody that receives a 12-month sentence. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. Today I'm joined by Bella Sankey, who's the director of the charity Detention Action. So, Bella, welcome. Thank you, Nathan. Um, in the last week in the news, we've, we've heard a lot about, about immigration detention. And for the first time, in a number of years, the government, the UK government, has managed to charter a flight to Zimbabwe and has has removed some people who it claims that had no permission to be in the country. So, because this is really topical, I'm really delighted that you could join us today. Your charity detention action assists people who are who are under immigration detention. So, from the outset. Can you set out for us, what is immigration detention? That's a really good question. Um, and it's one that I don't think um, enough people know the answer to. Um, immigration detention centres in the UK are a pretty sort of clandestine network of, of centres that are very prison-like hmm. in their look and their feel. Uh, many of them are former prisons and they are detention sites and detention facilities where people are held by the Home Office um, for, you know, potentially very long periods of time. I think one of the most problematic aspects of our immigration detention system mm. is that immigration detention in the UK is currently indefinite. So somebody who may have overstayed their visa um, or whose um, right to remain in the country is um, for some reason under doubt or in dispute mm -hmm. uh, can be rounded up by immigration enforcement, taken to an immigration detention centre. And they can languish there for sometimes days, weeks, months, even years. Uh, people have been held in immigration detention in this country in some cases for over four years. Um, so, you know, immigration detention is serious. Um, it's, it's a really problematic system. Um, but unfortunately, it's, there isn't currently enough awareness um, about immigration detention uh, and, and enough um, activism on this issue. So that's something, you know, that, that, that's a movement we're, we're trying to build. Right, okay. I mean, this is very worrying for people who have a rudimentary understanding of of the immigration system. Why doesn't a time limit exist on on a person being detained? How can the state arbitrarily just detain somebody indefinitely? Again, an, an absolutely excellent question. You know, in the land of Magna Carta, hmm. 
um, how can it be right that somebody can be detained indefinitely? It would seem to sort of undermine so many of the values and the principles that any liberal democracy is built on. Yeah. Uh, yet this is the case in 2021. Immigration detention is indefinite and there are really minimal checks and balances in place. And that is why people end up languishing in detention for so long. Every year, the Home Office pays millions of pounds in compensation to people that have been wrongfully detained. So it's kind of worked into the budget, I think, for them, that they know they will unlawfully detain hundreds of people and they will have to pay out huge sums of money. Mm. But uh, they currently like the status quo so much, having such huge um, powers, such a massive discretion, uh, that they point blank refuse to even um, consider a time limit. Now, in recent years, there's been really positive movement in Parliament towards putting a time limit in place. Mm -hmm. And there is now um, a really significant consensus among all of the main opposition parties, Labour, SNP, Lib Dem, Greens, the DUP as well, mm -hmm. that uh, a strict statutory time limit should be put uh, into law and um, there are also a number of conservative backbenchers that are very supportive of a time limit and 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 they go you know right across the conservative party from sort of brexiteers to to, to remainers mm -hmm. um who believe rightly that um you know the, the right to liberty is is a foundational principle and you can't arbitrarily take that away without proper checks and balances and at the very least a, a time limit in place. Right. Um, and so there have been moves towards this political consensus, but government um, is still absolutely opposed to a time limit. Okay, so this is really, really curious to me. Um, people who come to Britain to come and seek asylum, most of those people um, when they present, will presumably say that they're escaping torture, persecution. Um, in the case of, of women, they could have come from countries where they may be escaping rape. And there will be people who are discriminated against because of their, their sexuality, so LGBTQI. How is it possible that a vulnerable person like that can be detained. Again, this is an incredibly problematic part of our system. Um, immigration detention really does not discriminate. Um, you know, highly, highly traumatised people, people have, that have been through some of the worst experiences that a human being uh, can encounter and be subjected to are held in prisons indefinitely mm -hmm. um, without anything like the kind of support and the help they need. And and what we hear so frequently from the people that we support is that being in detention is re-traumatising and it triggers memories of past abuse. And interestingly, a lot of people actually talk about the detention period being as bad, if not worse, than some of the abuse that they suffered mm -hmm. um, because of its ability to 
have a re-traumatizing effect and because of the helplessness and the powerlessness that, that comes with being indefinitely detained in such an arbitrary way not having any control or any knowledge mm. about your fate when you might be released if you might be released if you're going to be removed from the country when that might be um it has an incredibly corrosive effect on the human mind on people's emotional um, and actually physical well-being um, because the two are obviously so interconnected interconnected um so it's 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 really horrendous that we treat anyone in this manner but you know does give you pause for thought that 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 some of the people that are being detained in this way will be some of the most traumatized people on earth. Hmm. That's very worrying. Um, your website um, helpfully points out that last year, twenty four thousand seven hundred and forty eight people were subject to indefinite detention. So the question that arises here is. I mean, there's a pandemic and there's a public health issue. Are, are people still subject to, to immigration detention during the pandemic? Yeah, people have been subjected to immigration detention throughout the pandemic. I think the figures for 2020, 2021 may be slightly lower than the average number of people um, or, or the usual number of people that we see detained each year in any non-pandemic year. Mm. Um, right at the start of the pandemic, back in March 2020, Detention Action brought a legal case challenging the use of detention during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, given what was known even at that early stage about how um, places where people are held or accommodated in really close proximity mm-hmm. uh, without necessary ventilation and so on um, can be massive vectors for the infection. Um, we know that there has been COVID outbreaks in, I think, nearly all of the detention centres now, including at Brook House, mm-hmm. uh, which is a detention centre near Gatwick, uh, very recently and, and just before the deportation flight to Zimbabwe last weeks. So um, COVID has been a massive problem. We also know from the people that my team supports that a lot of people that have been detained during this period have what are known as COVID comorbidities. So Mm -hmm. underlying health conditions that would make them more um, susceptible or more at risk if they contract COVID. And we also know that there has been a really appalling lack of Um, COVID precautions in detention. So right at the start of the pandemic, we were being told by the people that we support that there wasn't even soap um, made available to them uh, in the bathrooms and in the shower rooms in in detention centres, you know, let alone all of the other um, protections that that we know need to be in place. And I think those have been pretty patchy throughout uh, the pandemic and, and hence why there's been outbreaks at different sites. Um, but I think it tells you a lot about this government that even during a pandemic when, you know, international travel pretty much stopped for mm. a large part of that. So they were unable to deport and remove people for, for, for huge periods of time. 
that they still felt it was a, a government priority to hold people in detention. Hmm. So walk us through what actually happened. So if, if somebody has no permission to be in the country, is that when they're detained? Or is this an arbitrary tool that, that the government uses? Because in the case of people who come here to seek sanctuary, the government knows where they live. So presumably if there was an issue, they would just turn up to come and, and find this person rather than detain them. Why is the detention mechanism used at all if they know where people are? So the detention mechanism is used in a really arbitrary way. Um, you know, we work with people that may have lived in this country for a really long time, sometimes decades. Mm. Sometimes people that have been in the country, you know, since they were small children. Mm. Um, you know, ma many people don't realise that they are liable to be detained because it's such a broad discretion. Um, there's very little sort of general knowledge about it in in, in society and in communities. Mm. Um, but it, but it is, but it, but it is, um, as I say, a, a very kind of big dis discretionary power. Um, and so people can be detained at very random and arbitrary times. Um, you know, it may be that somebody's permission to be in the UK expired several years ago. They don't hear anything. And then one day there's a knock on the door and uh, the house is raided and they're taken into detention. It's often done in a very... Um, coercive um, manner with 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 the use of force. Um, the Home Office um, doesn't answer many questions very straight on on why it thinks it needs such a massive discretion. It will always kind of talk down the amount that it uses that discretion and point to the fact that. Um, until recently, the actual numbers of people being detained each year were falling. Mm. We've actually seen a real U-turn by the current government and the present Home Secretary, Priti Patel, who has been increasingly um, changing policies and practices so that there is an even greater reliance on detention by the Home Office. So there's a new detention facility for women that's being built in the north of England, and the current bill that she's taking through Parliament, the Nationality and Borders Bill, has all sorts of powers and uh, clauses in it that we believe will mean a massive spike in the use of detention. So we're ex really expecting to see those numbers going up. She plans to criminalise people who arrive in the UK seeking asylum that haven't travelled through a, a sort of pre-approved government route. Um, now, all of those people... Um, if criminalised and if served prison sentences, would then serve those sentences and, and likely immediately then go into immigration detention at the end of their sentence. That's something that happens already for people that have convictions for other offences. And so we expect that to, to mean an enormous spike in the use of detention. And she's also proposing offshore detention centres. Um, so similar to the experiment that Australia um, implemented uh, you know, just over a decade ago, the UK is now proposing warehousing people in offshore prisons indefinitely 
um, potentially including um, women, pregnant women, children, um, just just like Australia did, um, and that could obviously also mean a massive expansion in in the use of detention, but also detention even further away from public scrutiny, um, mm. detention without even the very you know basic and flimsy safeguards that exist here in the UK. Um, Aren't these measures a, a flagrant breach of the Refugee Convention, though? Because um, you you talk about pre-approved routes, what 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 are those pre-approved routes um, that people can can follow? Because I, I mean, this is an island, so it's very difficult to get here. Are are the government facilitating some route for people to to seek sanctuary here? No, they're not. And in fact, this government has actually shut down. Um, some of the very few number of routes that that did exist. Um, the, for example, the the scheme for unaccompanied asylum-seeking children that were in Europe, the, the Dub scheme, mm. um, and some other family reunion um, rights. Mm. So there are no pre-approved um, routes. The government has promised some, but has not been forthcoming with any information about what those might be mm. um, but instead yeah sort to criminalize people seeking asylum and just as you point out Nathan this is a flagrant breach of the refugee convention and international law um, the UN has said as much and has said that it's really concerned about this bill mm. it's called the whole proposal for offshore detention centres neo-colonial mm. um, and it's incredibly sad that you know a country like the UK which was one of the founding drafters of the refugee convention 70 years ago you know th- this was meant to be the promise to the world after the horrors of the holocaust that you know wherever um despots reign and and, and 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 you know wherever in the world you might be if you're being persecuted you will have a right you will have by virtue of the refugee convention a ticket to safety you know that that was meant to be how the convention worked and it's long been recognized that people when they're fleeing may do so very hurriedly without much of a plan taking, you know, minimal things um, with them, doing so in, you know, some of the most unsafe situations and circumstances you can possibly imagine. And the whole point of the Refugee Convention is it says that people should have the ability um, to seek protection somewhere that they feel safe. You know, that 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 is a subjective test. Um, and that they might travel through, you know, various countries in order to find that safety. Um, but that that was meant to be how the convention worked and, and, and the promise that it gave every individual in the world. And and that's what the UK is now rowing back on, rowing back really hard on, setting a really um, awful example to the rest of the world and potentially setting in train, you know, a, a series of motions that could see refugee protection globally badly, badly undermined. Mm. 
you know, it's, I mean, these are very, very difficult issues because you, you talk there of people who arrive by boat potentially being criminalized and then put up in, in this expanded detention estate and the UK government considering offshoring. Do you think that this is just political posturing and that these things won't see the light of day or is this real? I think it's both. I think it's political posturing um, and I think it's a desperate attempt to try and distract people and headline writers mm. from uh, the chaos that is playing out in northern France and in the Channel. Mm. Um, you know, Priti Patel, let's remember, became Home Secretary around two years ago and one of her first kind of uh, claims and, and promises was that she was going to make the the, ch the route over the channel in small boats unviable. Now, on her watch, the number of people making that journey has sharply increased. Mm. Um, it's important to put this in context and to know that overall, asylum applications in the UK are, are really down historically. They've been falling in recent years and they are much, much lower than, say, where they were in the early 2000s. Mm. Um, so it's not the case that we're suddenly seeing historic numbers of, of people coming here to claim asylum. And it's also important to know that the UK takes many, many fewer asylum seekers and has many fewer applications than than um, similar countries like France and Germany. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that the UK has a particular um, huge burden to shoulder here at all. Mm. Um, the crisis is entirely of the government's own making. Um, again, there is a really kind of simple and straightforward um, solution to people making the dangerous journey across the channel, and that would be uh, to create um, a mechanism whereby people that reach France that are wanting to travel onward to the UK could um, receive some sort of protection to, to, to make that journey. Uh, whether it's a visa or, you know, some sort of mechanism to allow people safe passage. But again, the government has turned its face against that um, and instead is is thinking that it can kind of arrest and imprison this way out of its way out of this issue. Um, so I think all of these plans to criminalise people and, and to send people to offshore detention centres are an attempt to distract from that, to look tough, to look like they've somehow got a grip of this situation, which they clearly don't. Mm. Um, but I also think it's important to take them very seriously and to take them at their word. I think this is a government that has been continually sort of underestimated in terms of how far it's prepared to go and how far it's prepared to go in breaking with um, historic democratic norms, whether it's, you know, unlawfully proroguing parliament mm. um, or, 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 or whatever. I think that once the, this bill is passed and those powers exist, this government will really double down to try and get deals in place to create offshore detention centres um, and to carry on with this kind of theatre um, of, 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 of looking tough on, on people seeking asylum and, and seeking protection. And I think that's why it's really important not, not to underestimate the powers in this bill and not to think that this is all grandstanding because, mm -hmm. yes, it is highly political and there is definitely a political agenda um, steering it. Mm -hmm. I don't 
believe that it's 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 kind of empty gimmicks or empty gestures. I, I think that the government may be deadly serious in its intentions. Yes, and we've we've seen um, about eight thousand people arrive through the channel, and from the data that the Home Office have released, ninety seven percent of those people have then gone on to claim asylum. And these are now people who, if this Borders and Nationality Bill goes through, could potentially be criminalised. So give us an insight into the detention estate. On on average, how long are people detained for? Um, so detention lengths will vary a lot. Um, we see people in detention that are there sometimes for a matter of days, um, mm. weeks, months. And as I've said, sometimes people can be detained for years. At any one time, uh, we're normally supporting several people in that position. So it's not a rare occurrence for people to be detained that long. Another important thing to remember is people are often detained more than once. Mm. Um, so there's a real sort of cumulative impact, um, a cumulative sort of oppressive impact that detention can have. Um, and we frequently work with people that may have been in detention for sort of three very long periods or four long periods. Mm. Um, and so one thing that um, is a very real and troubling aspect of the detention estate is that even when people are released from detention, there's that threat of detention that hangs over them. And, and people talk about the fact that they never really feel like they've left detention for as long as they're still liable to be detained. Mm. Psychologically, um, they can feel really imprisoned uh, and really sort of broken down by the system. Yeah, I can, um, I can imagine that there's a lot of mental health issues that arise as, as a result of this. The, the government in the last three years has had to pay out £24 million to 914 people who were found to have been wrongly detained. So typically, what, what are the courts finding here? Well, why, why is there compensation paid here? Why, what's, what will have been unlawful about the detention? Because you did say at the beginning that there's a really wide discretion that the government has um, in terms of detaining people. What are you finding are the reasons that judges are giving for compensating people? So the way that the system works means that the Home Office has a really wide discretion. There's no statutory time limit. But there are requirements in our common law um, mm. that impose, I suppose, some sort of safeguards on, on how long people can be detained. Now, the problem with those safeguards only existing in common law is it ends up being a little bit like how long is a piece of string. Mm. Um, so individuals may bring claims for unlawful detention and wrongful detention, and they may be successful in those claims. And, and, and you point to the number of people, I think over 900, you said who have been successful in the last three years. And that's a really large number of people mm. who have been, um, you know, unlawfully detained. It's one of the most kind of severe penalties that a government can inflict on somebody to to, right, to, to wrongfully detain them. Um, 
But the reality is that very many more people may have been wrongfully or unlawfully detained. That figure only tells you the number of people that have successfully taken legal action. Um, And one of the features of the detention system is that access to justice um, can be very, very difficult to obtain. Mm. Um, And it shouldn't be the case that you need to instruct lawyers to see yourself being released uh, and to, to, to see if you might be eligible for compensation. Mm. A functioning system would 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 mean that there was a, a clear kind of standard limit on how long somebody can be detained and then um, a presumption or a, um, a duty on government to then release them after a certain period of time. It, it shouldn't be so arbitrary as to, you know, depend so much on an individual's circumstances whether they can get lawyers you know whether they're able and in the right frame of mind to try and bring litigation um you know that's that's not the way that the system should work it's a backstop against abuse but it doesn't stop um this abuse of power um happening you know in in a really widespread way Mm. you know that's that's very interesting um earlier you spoke about how people may may underestimate this government to their own peril. Let's talk about what happened last week with this deportation flight that uh, your organization has been campaigning to stop and uh, you had quite a large um, social media presence. Um, So a, a controversial Home Office deportation charter flight to Zimbabwe, took took off at about 10.30 p.m. on Wednesday the 21st of July. But it left with only around a third of the the people that the Home Office wanted to remove. So it's the first mass deportation flight to Zimbabwe for many years and marks the start of a planned summer of charter flight deportations to countries including Vietnam, Jamaica, Nigeria and Ghana that the Home Office is planning. Talk to us about the, the background to this this charter flight, Bella, if you will. Um, who are the people who the Home Office were deporting and for what reasons? Mm. Um, so charter flights are a phenomenon that have been increasingly used by successive governments, actually. Um, but I believe that this government has sharply um, increased their use of charter flights. And the idea is that you expel from the country um, a large group of people at one time. Mm-hmm. So we believe that for this flight, the government intended to expel 50 people. Um, I think that the COVID rules are such that um, 50 is like a kind of upper limit that can be um, taken on a plane with escorts um, uh, at, at any one time. And we've seen a huge increase in the number of charter flights that the Home Office ran to Europe last summer, removing asylum seekers to countries that they travelled through on their journey. And then in the last few months, we've seen a huge spike um, again in the use of charter flights within Europe and also long haul flights. So there was an early charter flight to Vietnam 
um, a couple of months ago. We believe the first ever charter flight to Vietnam. Um, the people that the Home Office seeks to remove on these flights are are mixed. Um, some of them are people that uh, no longer have the right to remain in the UK, and that can be for various reasons: visas expiring, and you know other reasons why their right to remain here may have expired. Um, sometimes there will be people whose asylum applications have um, failed, mm-hmm. and then sometimes they are people who have been convicted of an offence and have served a prison sentence and the Home Office then seeks to remove people at the end of that sentence. Um, The problem with charter flights per se is that any kind of mass expulsion um, that's seeking to remove so many people at once necessarily means um, that the normal safeguards that might be in place to prevent unlawful removals really fall away. So we often see the system getting totally overwhelmed. There just literally aren't enough lawyers um, available with the necessary skills and experience to um, challenge or to represent individuals as they're entitled to be represented um, to test whether uh, their removal is is lawful. Um, so that's a that's a huge problem, and and you have to remember the context here like these are life and death decisions removals and deportations and if the government gets it wrong Mm -hmm. somebody can be killed upon their return they can be tortured uh, or they can otherwise have their human rights violated in really extreme ways um i think Bella, you know so a lot of people will be will be surprised that there can be a charter flight to a country like zimbabwe which has a very poor human rights record how is how is that possible that if you if you go on to the to gov.uk and you look at the advice that is given to Britons when traveling to Zimbabwe it more or less in summary says you really shouldn't be going because of the political situation there so how is this possible that they they can remove people in this way so it's a massive double standard isn't it Mm. Um, and, you know, evidence was actually revealed today, um, through a journalist via an FOI that showed that the government particularly targets certain countries for deportation. Mm. Um, and that includes, um, a number of black majority countries that are former colonies of the UK, in particular Jamaica, Nigeria, Ghana, um, and, you know, on the strength of that evidence and the practices um, and the strategy we see for detaining people and, and, and comparative lengths of detention, it's really clear um, that black British residents um, face um, much, you know, being detained in much greater number, mm-hmm. um, being held for longer periods and being more likely to be deported. Um, so yeah, there's there's a massive double standard there, um, and clearly, you know what what one branch of government says about um, where people where British people should travel and what they're prepared to do for people that aren't considered British and are considered to be um, essentially second class citizens is you know is is stark and really problematic. Um, 
And I think that's why a lot of people had fears about this flight, quite rightly so. And I think it's also why um, at the 11th hour, somebody who challenged their deportation Mm -hmm. was given a stay by the High Court. And that was on grounds that they had been interviewed for an emergency travel document by Zimbabwean government officials. So this had been facilitated by um, the Home Office. And in that interview, there was evidence that they had been asked about their asylum claim by these Zimbabwean government officials. Um, And that led the High Court to say that a threshold had been met, um, which meant that their removal should be stopped because there was a real risk that uh, they may be subjected to inhumane treatment and persecution on their return to Zimbabwe. Now, I mentioned just now that there's a real problem with the way charter flights operate because the system becomes overwhelmed. And this case is a really good example because of the 14 or so people that were removed on the flight, it's unknown how many of them were also interviewed by Zimbabwean government officials and may also have been asked about their asylum claim, putting them at risk on return. This judgment um, for the individual I mentioned was handed down uh, I think just around six or seven o'clock in the evening for a flight that was leaving at 10.30. There was no time for people to be made aware of this judgment, for them to instruct their lawyers um, to challenge their own removal if they would be similarly at risk. Mm-hmm. At that point, you know, people are being loaded onto coaches and taken to the airport and their mobile phones are being taken off them. Um, so there's a massive problem with access to justice. It completely undermines the rule of law. And it means that when these charter flights operate, people may well be being removed in completely unsafe circumstances um, to an unknown fate. And uh, that's just one of the reasons why charter flights in general are so problematic. But in particular, this flight to Zimbabwe caused huge concern. Mm. In, in, I think it's about six months ago, um, there was another charter flight to Jamaica. There is something very similar here in that not all the people who are are said uh, to be leaving end up leaving. This Zimbabwe flight has only got a third of the people going. Uh, the previous one to Jamaica, I think, had a quarter of the people who were, who were supposed to be de- deported. Is this fundamentally an issue about, about access to justice and that people only then get that access to justice when they're about to leave. Because as you'll find with both flights, there are fathers who are fathers to children who are born in this country. How are those people who are fathers, how, how does that happen? How, how is it that they get deported and then that, that child is deprived of the right to, to their parent? Mm. Um, really excellent questions. There is a massive problem with access to justice and the system is so dysfunctional that yes, people um, may have been in the country for a really long time and it can take the Home Office, um, you know, years and years, sometimes decades to let them know, you know, we're actually going to try and remove you from the country now. I remember on one of the Um, Jamaica charter flights I think it was the one last February so February 2020 um, we 
supported somebody who had a, a conviction for 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 a drug related offence from two thousand and three. He'd subsequently got married, had children, um, also become a stepfather, and then become a carer for his for his wife, hmm. and was rounded up and deported. You know. 17 years after that offence, when he was completely rehabilitated and had, um, you know, started um, a family life. Um, it's completely ludicrous that people are, you know, served with the removal directions at such last minute. There is then a scramble for access to lawyers. Um, and I think it is pretty arbitrary who, who ends up going and who ends up staying at that point. Um, and then, yes, I mean, one of the huge injustices of our deportation system as it currently exists is that the right to family life and family bonds between parents and children are completely disrespected by the system. Mm. Um, so deportation is effectively mandatory for anybody that receives a 12-month sentence or more. Um, you can challenge your deportation if you have uh, family ties in the UK. But under Theresa May, the rules and the law changed around that to make it much, much harder for parents to resist deportation on the grounds of their family life. And it's now the case that you can have very many children here. Mm. You can be a completely loving and devoted parent that spends all of their time with their kids you can be somebody who's basically a primary carer so that, you know, that the main caregiver, the person that takes the kids to school or nursery and, and collects them afterwards and, um, you know, is, is incredibly present in their lives. And unless the courts say that you being removed from the UK would have an unduly harsh effect on your kids, you will be deported. Um, and what that law effectively does is it writes child cruelty into the statute book. So everywhere else in our laws and our policies, um, outside of the immigration sphere, you know, we're trying to rid ourselves of child cruelty. And there are all sorts of safeguards and statutory services in place to try and protect children from harm. Mm. Yet in the immigration sphere and in deportation law in particular, there is actually a statutory provision that talks about un, undue harshness. And the Home Office interprets that to mean excessive cruelty. So, um, you know, necessarily by virtue of that, um, a little bit of cruelty or no, a normal amount of cruelty is deemed to be okay. And we work at Detention Action with families, uh, partners, wives, children of people who have been deported, who are facing deportation. Um, and they're a fantastic network. They're called Families for Justice. Um, and it's through working with that network that we see firsthand the pain and the suffering that is incurred when 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 loving parents are, are deported from their children. It's, it's, it's essentially a permanent banishment for these families. Um, many of them will not be able to afford to go and visit a parent. Um, and, you know, these children may never see their parent again or, or at least not for the rest of their childhood um you know it's routine that children in this circum in these circumstances will suffer 
um, enormous harm, you know, bedwetting, changed behaviour, um, self-harm. Uh, we have diagnoses of PTSD for the children that are involved. Um, it's hugely damaging. And we believe that there are thousands of children in the UK that have been affected in this way. But it's very under the radar because I think there is a, a social stigma um associated with people that have been convicted of offences and and that has traditionally I think stopped um, parents and families really speaking out and of campaigning against this and that's something that we're now seeking to try and change because it shouldn't be the case that innocent kids that have done absolutely nothing wrong are being punished by their own government um, for previous failings of, of their parents. Now it's not the case that deportation is always going to be unjust. You can definitely imagine circumstances where it might be the right result. Um, but you would, in, in, in any sort of humane system, um, it shouldn't be controversial to to agree that when somebody has got children and is playing a major role in those children's lives, deportation should be the exception and not the rule. Mm. In the country of Magna Carta, um it's very curious. It's very curious that they can be a human rights act that exists on the, the statute, statute book that uh, protects the right to a family life. But then that um, immigration rules can override that human rights act. Do, do you think the direction in which the government is traveling so far, will they water down the human rights act or try and get rid of it? and bring in a Bill of Rights, which will only protect citizens? I think that the government, um, the, the, the Conservative government that's been in, in place since 2010 has been um, consistently threatening to do this. Um, they, I believe, purposefully try and create division around the Human Rights Act, to blame the Human Rights Act for all sorts of things that the Human Rights Act isn't even responsible for. Mm. Um, and I'm sure they would dearly wish to rip up its protections. Um, I understand that as part of the um, Brexit negotiations and the, and the settlement between the UK and the EU, um, there is uh, certain safeguards and protections been put around the Human Rights Act. It's a very sort of basic code of civil and political rights. And if you're not signed up to it, it's difficult to see um, how you can really kind of exist in the free world and expect to have trading relationships with mm. other respectable countries. So um, I would never say that the Human Rights Act is safe, because I think it's clearly a huge political target. Um, but I think that campaigners have been successful in protecting the Human Rights Act against a lot of vicious attacks. Um, and I hope that they will remain successful in doing that. Um, I think one of the things, though, that you have to keep in mind and, and keep your eye on is that a lot of, da as you've sort of just illustrated, Nathan, a lot of damage can be done through other pieces of legislation, which really try and rip the heart and soul out of the Human Rights Act. And, and those are the provisions that I mentioned around um, uh, basically, essentially seeking to override or or discount family life protections in the deportation context. 
Mm. Um, and again, the government has massive sort of latitude here to bring forward primary legislation. It's got a huge government majority, and so legislation just sails through. Um, and yeah, it's really important to keep an eye on um, mm. all of those ways in which human rights are being downgraded or undermined by other pieces of legislation. Um, and to, and to challenge those pieces of legislation, you know, using the Human Rights Act when when necessary. Yeah, and, and it's been a really fascinating conversation with you, Bella, and really illuminating. Um, just before we conclude, let's talk about this Freedom of Information request that was done by this journalist that you mentioned, which suggests that a, a disproportionate amount of people who are removed from the country are from Britain's former majority black um, countries or African nations. So continental Africa and the, and the Caribbean. I was just, just looking at um, the Chief Inspector of Borders report from 2010 to about 2018. So they, they identi- he identifies um, in all of those reports that consistently the people who overstay visas the most are Australians. It's pretty curious that there is no there are no deportations or any such charter flights ever. I've looked on the record to Australia. What does that, what does that sort of speak to? Um, I think that says a lot about this government. And again, I'd say successive governments approach to enforcing immigration rules. Um, David Lammy, I think has a really interesting Um, definition of institutional racism and he talks about interrogating um, the statistics Mm. for institutions you know outputs and and, and outcomes and if there is racial disparity in those statistics the assumption needs to be that there may be um, institutional racism Mm. Um, and it's then the onus then falls on the institution or the government or whoever is responsible to explain, to justify and to try and rationalise why there is a divergence in treatment or outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've not seen any such rationalisation or justification um, from the Home Office, but the statistics really speak for themselves. Um if you are Jamaican or Nigerian, you are much, much more likely to be detained uh, than if you are Australian or Canadian or from New Zealand. And as you've um, just explained, Nathan, the the, the disproportionate use of deportation mm. um, against nationals of different countries, you know, really clearly shows um, that there are discriminatory outcomes um, for black majority nationalities um and particularly those um that have got um you know that the, the previous colonies um of the uk and, and and who have been enslaved um by the uk in in centuries past so mm. you know this is a really problematic 
legacy. Um, you know, the Windrush scandal, and I, I, I hesitate because it, it's not a scandal that's been and gone. It's it's still very much still ongoing. Very present, yeah. Um, but but the treatment of the Windrush generation, I think, serves to show the disrespect and the disregard that this government has shown um, the black community in the UK, um, the Caribbean community, but also um, uh, African descendant communities who have been affected by Windrush. But, um, you know, that there hasn't been as as, as much attention on them. Um, And I think the disproportionality of, of the use of deportation against these um, against these countries again, really, you know, it poses more many more questions than than it answers. You've got to remember that for a lot of these communities, until pretty recently, relatively speaking, they had rights of citizenship and rights to remain. Um, and so, having a really sort of cutthroat deportation policy is actually not just ripping families apart, as we've just discussed, it's ripping communities mm-hmm. apart. Um, because as you'd expect with um, Commonwealth communities in the UK, you know, people will bridge um, the Commonwealth country of origin and, and, and the UK. I have um, Nigerian ancestry and I have family in Nigeria and I have family here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a way of life for Commonwealth communities Mm -hmm. um and it's deeply problematic that there is no um there is absolutely no acknowledgement or um recognition of that in our immigration policy and instead um a law which is as i say cutthroat blunt um, you know, very much disrespecting of, of basic human rights is applied not even just across the board, but mm-hmm. with more ferocity mm-hmm. to those to, to communities um, of, of of those countries. Um, and I think it, you know, it it, it poses real challenges to um, to this government and their treatment of of the black community. Um, and I've not, as I say, I've not yet heard any answers mm. um, that 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 are adequate to to that question. In fact, you hear a lot of rhetoric from this Home Secretary that's deeply, deeply troubling. At the start of the year, she talked about a drumbeat of deportation flights to Jamaica. She has so far held up her willingness and her eagerness to deport people, including people that have really long-standing links with the UK, including people that, you know, were born here or arrived in nappies. Mm. Um, she's held that up as a badge of honour. Mm. Yeah, no. Um, as we conclude, uh, we know that in the coming weeks, there will be deportation flights to Vietnam, to Jamaica, to, to Trinidad and Tobago, to Ghana, to Nigeria. So... Tell our audience how they can possibly assist Detention Action in its work and where they can find you. Thanks, Nathan. Um, So uh, we really believe that um, 
individual engagement with these issues in action can can pay huge dividends um and we'd really encourage your listeners to engage you know over particularly the next few months when as you say we're going to see we think a massive increase in the use of these charter flights um detention action is really active on twitter and we have um a website um and i'd really urge um listeners to go and and have a look at our work and our campaigns um we don't believe that charter flights are ever the right answer to, to any question um and we will be campaigning against these flights we're going to be looking at engaging with the airlines that operate them um to explain why they're so problematic and why they violate human rights um we're going to be um asking supporters to be in touch with their MP, to be in touch directly with the Home Office and to try and raise the alarm and put pressure on the Home Office uh, and this government for um, its approach to to this issue. Um, so yeah, I would I would urge urge your listeners to take a look at our work. We're also always open to donations. Um, and so if you know, if, if, if that is an option, um, you know, please, please, please do think about that. Um, we also have a mailing list. And if you go to our website, you can really easily um, be put on our mailing list and get regular updates about what's happening, what's planned and, and what actions we're asking people to take. Yeah. And with that um, impassioned plea for for our audience to to connect with with Detention Action, uh, thank you so much. Bella Sankey, Director of Detention Action 4, for speaking to us today. Thank you, Nathan. So thank you for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk, where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at CARAG Coventry. So until the next episode of Still We Rise, thanks for joining us and goodbye.